If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I told you the story of the Cowden family and how Richard, Belinda, David, and Melissa seemed to have vanished while camping near Carberry Creek Road over the Labor Day weekend of 1974. Over seven months later, their skeletal remains were discovered, Belinda and the children in a cave, Richard tied to a tree. With very little to go on, police began looking into local men who could have not only known the area well, but may have been capable of such a monstrous act. It was when they read Dwayne Lee Little's name on the list of recently paroled prisoners that the hair on their necks stood up, and they felt they may have found the person of interest. Today I'll be telling you about the crimes Dwayne committed that landed him in prison, how he came to be released so early, and the harm he was able to commit as a free man. Was he the killer of the Cowden family? Only Dwayne and the Cowdens know. Dwayne Lee Little was born in Lane County, Oregon, to Bruce and Margaret Little in 1949. When he was a baby, his mother was arrested and charged with arson after burning down her friend's house. She was jailed for a short time before the charges were dropped. Just two years later, the Little's home would meet the same fate and they would lose everything. Investigators claimed the fires were unrelated. All right, get your serial killer background bingo card ready. At seven years old, Dwayne was accidentally struck in the head with a baseball bat. He was in the hospital for several days following the traumatic brain injury. Once released, he had to wear a specialized helmet for five months. Because of this, he was unable to participate in any kind of contact sport. He also suffered from frequent and severe headaches. It was believed this may have been the cause of his issues with reading and writing. He wasn't the only one in the family with an odd health history. Mother Margaret had issues of her own. As a child, she suffered from arthritis, which eventually became leg-calf Perth's disease, a.k.a. Perth's disease. It's a disease that causes the thigh portion of the ball and socket hip joint to lose blood supply for a short amount of time. This then collapses the head of the thigh bone, specifically the ball portion of the joint. This, of course, causes pain, inflammation, and irritation. When she was 10, she wound up in the hospital where she was put in a cast and traction for nine months. She was resigned to wearing a brace that ran from her ankle to her armpit for years. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Isn't that horrendous? Just half your body locked? I had to walk around in a like a boot for a a few months, and that was pretty hellish. Yeah. And I had to go around on a little stupid... <laughs> and that was, and that was only to like you know below your knee right yeah, yeah yeah and this was all the way up nightmare that's horrible yeah. when she fell pregnant with her daughter margaret's illness came back with a vengeance her leg required the use of the body length brace again she got a horrible kidney infection and she was paralyzed for a short while after sherry was born And even though she suffered from cysts and probably endometriosis, leading to multiple surgeries, it was noted she never complained about the lemon of a body she was stuck with. Sherry was born to a different man than Margaret would end up marrying, which was Bruce Dwayne Little. Bruce was unfazed by Sherry, and he raised her as his own. He worked as a crimper, meaning he was responsible for cutting and twisting wires together, 
In later years, he would become a logger, owning his own equipment for the job and working alongside his brother, Lee. Sherry was unaware of Bruce's paternity as she was so young when he came into the picture. Four years later, Dwayne was born. It wouldn't be until Sherry was well into her teen years that the truth would come out about her father. She may have always felt different, or perhaps she was angered by the deception, but after she found out about her dad, she started to act out. Where Sherry was the problem child, Dwayne couldn't have been more opposite. He was, as we call my little brother in our family, mostly as a joke, mom's special little guy. Margaret had an unusually intense bond with her son. For example, either to spoil him or trying to keep him her little baby, she bottle-fed him until he was four years old. Which, there's no judgment on that. It's more about her intention. You know, like if you're giving your child a bottle because there are feeding issues or for nutrition, that would be one thing. But doing it for your own codependent needs, not so much. That's a little old. I don't... It's a little old. As the years went on, the bond between mother and son grew to a point where she could not even stand being away from him. Margaret had to leave him at home once for a week. The separation was too much and it actually caused an anxiety attack. So yes, you can now mark mommy issues off of your bingo card. Dwayne would eventually be placed at a Seventh-day Adventist school, which he fell in love with, soon surpassing even his parents as to who was the more religious. He was reading the Bible, going to church regularly, and eventually was baptized into the religion. Physical ailments weren't the only health issues for the little family. Mental problems would lead to a life of paranoia and violence. Bruce's brother Lee Lafayette Little claimed that Margaret was having an affair with a man referred to as Cy in Anne Rule's book, But I Trusted You. At some point, an altercation led to Bruce claiming Cy had threatened him and the family. Later reports from Margaret would claim that Lee had been the one threatening the family. What was more concerning were the accusations that Lee was actually romantically or even sexually attracted to Sherry. She was his niece, but as you'll recall, she did have a different father. Additionally, Lee was actually the half-brother of Bruce, so the lack of actual relation apparently made Lee think that she was an appropriate crush. With the supposed threats of violence and sexual attraction, the Littles leaned into their already paranoid lifestyle. The house was always armed with loaded guns at the ready, guns that the children were taught to use before they were even in the first grade. Dwayne's background check brought up a host of aliases, Dwayne spelled a variety of ways, variations on Don Little Thunder, Dwayne Little Thunder, Thunder Don Little, Dennis Lupix, and Dwayne L. Hardin, among others. This was due to the family spending years on and off in hiding. They became so paranoid they were being targeted, they even made the kids haul water to the home because they didn't trust their personal supply to not be poisoned. Whoa. Yeah. The 50s got pretty wild for the Littles. Even with a recluse lifestyle and a history of things like arson, they were supposedly allowed to foster children. And in 1956, it was reported that one such child found one of those loaded guns and took aim at Bruce. Pulling the trigger, Bruce was struck in the groin. His right leg lost some use, but more upsetting to our penis-having listeners, he also lost a testicle and a portion of his penis. For the record, there was a possibility that this shooting had actually been committed by Lee, his half-brother, but was being reported as being a random child, either by mistake or to keep the drama within the family. Which portion of the penis are we talking here? The middle third? It it didn't say, so (laughs) I'm guessing because it was a testicle and his leg, I would think like a side side grazing. That is terrifying. (laughs) You don't want to get shot in the near anywhere near a penis. I don't Not want to get shot anywhere, anywhere personally, but especially there. So you know, loaded guns laying around, you could get shot in the penis. When the '60s rolled around, reports from the Littles had been called in for years, usually in regards to the animals on their property. Two dogs were poisoned, as were nine of their cows. Two other cows had been shot. 
Their logging equipment was set ablaze, a crime that was never solved, which cost the family $32,000 or nearly $330,000 today. Wow. So it was devastating to say the least. So maybe they were right to be paranoid. Or those are other signs of someone growing up a certain way. Shockingly, the bad luck didn't end there. In late 1960, there was a logging accident. If Bruce wasn't certain at first if his brother Lee had purposely aimed for the tree to fall on him, the boasting of having been the one responsible for, quote, busting Bruce up with the tree confirmed that he had been targeted. The injury of the tree left Bruce permanently disabled, causing a limp and a pain in his leg. On March 20th, 1961, Lee was over at Bruce's for a visit. Bruce invited Lee into the kitchen for some pie. Then the sensitive subject of money came up when Lee asked to borrow $600 for a trip to Alaska. Bruce's refusal was met with aggression from Lee. Bruce claimed Lee said he was going to, quote, break me up. Being threatened, Bruce grabbed another one of those loaded guns and shot his 30-year-old brother Lee three times with a 12-gauge shotgun. He then called the police, who swiftly arrived and found Lee's body in the kitchen. Bruce admitted to being the shooter before crying. While in custody, he made a full confession, and he was held without bail. All right, forget the bingo card, because now we're getting into ACEs territory. For those unfamiliar, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire, or ACEs, is utilized mostly by mental health professionals to gauge a child's level of trauma. Adults can take the quiz, too. And it's funny, a little side story. When I did one for work years ago, 90% of our staff had a seven or higher, which is out of 10. And myself and my work wife had one and zero. So apparently to work with mental health kiddos, you're either going to be on one end of the spectrum or the other. Dwayne has at least three at this point. Parents with mental health issues, losing a parent to prison, exposure to violence. Bruce was charged with first-degree murder, but had planned on claiming the shooting was in self-defense. At trial, a psychologist shared the diagnosis of Bruce being a paranoid schizophrenic. The coldness in which he shot his brother at close range supported their theory of Bruce's inability to tell right from wrong. The defense then pivoted to insanity. On June 21, 1961, Bruce was found not guilty by reason of criminal insanity and mental irresponsibility. He was sentenced to be committed for life or until deemed safe to society at the Eastern State Mental Health Ward. He was scheduled to check in for his treatment on May 19th, but he didn't show. Seems like this check-in process was a little loosey-goosey. If you find someone to be so mentally ill that they were capable of killing their brother and they needed to be locked in a facility for the rest of their life... You don't just let them, like, drive themselves there? A little bit of protocol or, you know, be taken straight to the hospital from the trial like you yeah. would to prison. Not like, hey, mom, can you drop him off on <laughs> Tuesday at four? Yeah, does uh, three weeks from from Wednesday. Does that work for you? We Did he get his opening. braces looked at before you check him in? Just uh, that just seems a little. Well, you'll find out why it's a bad idea. The hospital called the police to report this escape. Though a warrant was issued, Margaret had a different story to tell. She claimed that the hospital staff, including a no longer working there administrator, purchased a plane ticket for Bruce, sending him to Mississippi. From there, he went to Memphis, where he met up with some of Margaret's family. Police claimed Bruce had actually taken a bus to Chicago, then to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, then to New York, before getting to Memphis and then ending up in Mississippi. A month later, Bruce was arrested in Memphis. Amazingly, Bruce's 37-year-old lawyer filed a brief, and in it, he claimed that since Bruce had actually been found not guilty, extradition would be moot as he was not convicted of a crime, nor did he have any other charges pending. And this actually convinced the governor of Washington to call Tennessee's governor to say they would not be pursuing Bruce. Whoa. He was then let out of the Memphis jail, And he was a completely free man. So the lesson here is that, as we've learned in other cases, to avoid charges, you can just go check into a mental institution, or in this case, to avoid a sentence at a mental institution, you can just not go to it. Go on a road trip. And they're like, okay, fine. The family had been living in Tennessee. 
Once the legal issues were behind them, they made a new home for themselves outside Springfield, Oregon. Dwayne was 15 and happy to have his family back to the normal he was accustomed to. He was especially relieved to be away from the Medical Lake area of Washington. Everyone at school knew he had been the child of a psycho patient, and they were giving him a lot of shit for it. He had also loathed his time in Tennessee. By this time, Dwayne was beginning to live up to his last name. Five foot eight is an average height for a teenage boy, but he was on the smaller side, weighing only about 150 pounds. Starting school yet again as the new kid, Dwayne's brain injury was really starting to cause issues regarding his education. His IQ was estimated to be in the range of 89 to 94, which is just slightly below average. He struggled with reading and meeting basic expectations of student behavior. One of the few friends he had made in the area was Floyd Phipps. The teenagers didn't hang out often, but Floyd would go to Dwayne's house from time to time. When his one-year-older sister Orla Fay would come by, shy Dwayne would hide away in his room until both his friend and Orla were gone. More often, Dwayne could be found in the orchard that sat close to the family's property. There, he and his dog would wander, exploring the land, hunting, setting traps. He enjoyed the solitude. Tragedy struck Thurston High School, which is located in Springfield, the fall of 1964. The weekend of October 10th and 11th brought the deaths of 12 people in a variety of extreme and bizarre vehicular accidents throughout the I-5 corridor. One of those 12 victims was 14-year-old Leighton Reinhardt. The high school football star was thrown off his motorcycle before striking a parked logging truck, and he died instantly. Just a few weeks later, on November 2nd, there would be another shocking death of a teenager. Orla Faye Phipps was 16 years old in 1964. She was the same height as Dwayne at 5'8", but weighed about 15 pounds less. She was friendly and had friends, but she was more of the quiet type, except for when she was singing in the school's choir. When not in school, Orla enjoyed being a member of both the Camp Creek Church and 4-H, where she won second place in the Dwarf Marigolds Division at the Lane County Fair in 1962. Her brother Floyd would take home the win for Franquette Walnuts. Fun facts. She was also athletic, enjoying being on the field hockey team, and something that was listed as GRA, and I could not find anything about that. So if anyone knows of a school activity that's acronymed GRA, please Gmail us. Do you know, does that sound familiar to you at all? Does that, do you no. know what that is? Gymnastics, recreational acrobats. I hope so. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Random, not so fun fact. Orla made the paper in 1950 when she lost part of a finger in a lawn mowing accident. Okay, newspapers, can you mind your business a little bit? They shared everything back in the day. It was, I know. They're like, so-and-so. Oh, yeah, they're like, here's the address of the person that's out of town for that a week. That was until recently they were still doing that, though. <sighs> it's nuts. always surprising to me. Orla's favorite activity by far was horseback riding. She did it nearly every day after school. On some occasions, her brother or a friend would accompany her just in case she was to get injured. On Monday the 2nd, Orla rode alone. When dinner time came around, her parents, Marcella and William, grew concerned. Being tardy was not in Orla's nature. Seeking help, William gathered neighbors that were willing to help search. Some of those involved in the search were 21-year-old Roy Stuckey and 15-year-old Dwayne. Not long after the search began, the horse was found in the woods, and Orla was nowhere in sight. This discovery heightened everyone's concerns and the police were called. Searches continued after sunset. Roy wound up on a steep trail. Sweeping his light across the bushes to the side of the trail, his beam landed on the white and red body of 16-year-old Orla. She was face up, her clothing had been cut, her throat was slit. Just like the Cowden scene, the darkness would only make for a dangerous situation. An officer was left to secure the area overnight. In the morning, the medical examiner joined police to process the scene. Orla's body had been located between the Phipps and Little Homes. At autopsy, Orla Fay's official cause of death was listed as hemorrhage from deep incised wound of throat, which had been caused via, quote, an attack by an unknown assailant. But that was only one of the wounds she could have succumbed to. 
Given the defensive wounds that were found on Orla, it was clear she had fought hard against her attacker. Her skull was fractured from blunt force trauma. She had been stabbed multiple times. She was also raped post-mortem. Gross. Strangely, or maybe not, Orla's body was exhumed a few weeks later, in early December, so that Dr. Russell Henry, Portland's chief M.E., could examine her. The police were unaware of this, and there was no plan on getting any new evidence. Perhaps because it was such a brutal murder in a small town, the big city guy wanted to make sure everything was caught. I've never heard of this before, Emily, have you? We're a different jurisdiction. Uh, only when it's been like a notified, like it, it was either raised to a higher court or like the FBI. And yeah. Then they come in and they, but they do it all officially and would notify the police department. Yeah. This was just kind of like, uh, oh, we need to check her out. Can you bring her up real quick? And we'll. Although there are there are times where a family, <clears throat> maybe somebody convinces a family like, hey, there yeah. might be more knowledge here. If you give us permission, we'll do the testing. Well, and especially then because Springfield, especially in the 50s and 60s, I would guess would have less technology than what Portland had. Yeah. So. Oh, I think Portland was involved in a lot of the bigger cases yeah. all around Oregon. But also that's not a bad idea. Can we start cross-referencing work like that? It would probably save a lot of issues. Yeah. Have two or three medical examiners check out everybody. Well, we've we've got the lo- time and money a, for that, right? I was going to say, they have a lot on their plate. No, it's <laughs> fine. Police had no leads as to who would want to harm Orla, but it didn't seem that she or anyone in her family had any enemies. Detectives were able to collect some evidence from the scene. They had clothing, hair, blood, and saliva samples, but still no leads. To narrow down possibilities, the investigation started with the neighbors. Officers knocked on every door in the area, asking the neighbors if they knew of anything or if they had seen anything the day and evening Orla was killed. Dwayne provided some helpful information, sharing that he had actually seen a hunter in the area that very day. The Little family didn't hesitate to get a lawyer. Getting the attorney's permission, the police went to the Little home and took some of Dwayne's clothing and other unnamed personal items. Dwayne then left town for a supposed hunting trip, but the police were not done speaking with him. Margaret called the detectives when Dwayne returned home, and they were soon back at the house, this time with photos in hand. The photos were of local men, and the hope was that Dwayne would be able to make a positive ID in regard to the man he claimed to have seen that day. As Dwayne looked through the photos with his mother at his side, she piped in with a question. She had heard a rumor that all of the men in town were giving the police body samples, and she wanted to know if they would be asking that of Dwayne. Well, now that she was bringing it up, they would be very happy to take those samples if he was willing. So Margaret called their attorney, and he said that there would be no issue and that he should give it to them. I'm sorry, body samples? As in saliva, hair, oh, all of that. Okay. Now that it was all approved, Margaret didn't have an issue with it. But since Dwayne was down with a cold, she would prefer someone come to them instead of them having to go all the way into town. Well, that was not a problem. The police were happy to arrange for a doctor to go to the house where he took a blood sample along with head and pubic hair trimmings. The next day, he returned to get a saliva sample. Margaret had failed to mention the saliva or pubic hair to the lawyer when she was seeking permission. These samples would be a major point of contention in the future. Yes, Dwayne had given the samples freely, but he was underage. Detectives felt fine about it because Margaret gave the permission, as did the attorney. However, there was nothing documented that showed consent from Dwayne directly except for the actual samples, which showed that he had allowed them to take them. First brought in to speak with the police as a suspect, Dwayne was shown color photos of the crime scene and Orla's body. Even with the officers yelling at him while he looked at his deceased acquaintance, he denied any involvement. Not shaken by the intensity, Dwayne left the interview, shook the hands of the officers, and seemed to be totally unfazed by the interaction. And I'm not sure how many 15-year-olds would respond to such intensity that way. I know I'm not 15, and I would be shaken to my core. Then, Dwayne's samples came back as matching to those that were found on Orla's body to the extent that they could be matched in 1964. He was arrested on November 18th. Based on the evidence presented, he was officially indicted on November 20th. The smile he flashed in his booking photo was unnerving. 
Dwayne wasn't giving any interviews at the time, but his pastor did. Elder William Ring shared that Dwayne had told him, quote, they got the wrong person. This is the biggest mistake they ever made. The arrest of the teenager was met with arguments from his lawyer. Dwayne was held in jail without bail from mid-November until December 20th when he turned 16 and was able to be tried as an adult. There was an appeal filed that argued that though he was 16 now, when the crime occurred, he was only 15, so he should be treated as a juvenile. This argument went all the way to the state Supreme Court, where they agreed with the lower courts, saying that the argument of the trial being unconstitutional were in regards to a speedy trial or the right to a lawyer, and that it must be shown in a particular case that the state has abused its control over a particular defendant while he was retained as a juvenile. Another fight was in regards to the evidence, specifically the samples. The argument was that the 15-year-old could not legally give consent. The response was that his mother and lawyer had given consent on his behalf. Though there was nothing on paper showing Dwayne approved of the samples, there was also no evidence of an argument, so they were permitted. As Dwayne waited for his trial, his 14-year-old girlfriend and her family were busy raising money to help with his legal fees. She was also requesting to be able to go visit him, which was denied. Someone who was allowed to visit was his mother, Margaret. His mother would come to visit as often as she could. Get that bingo dauber out, because now we're marking off lack of boundaries with mommy. Correction officers and fellow inmates would report that when the mother and son greeted each other, they kissed on the lips, and not in an appropriate peck way. In fact, they would not only kiss then or at their departure, but casually throughout the visit. Even at 16 years old, Margaret would insist that her son sat on her lap. What? As he did, she would fuss with his hair, hold his hands, and even rub his leg. This would cause Dwayne to have a visible erection. (gasps) Can you imagine, like, other people at this jail or... Yeah, and it makes me think, it makes me curious, I guess, what his response in the moment was like was he loving it or was he embarrassed but knew he couldn't pull away was he or uh, embarrassed by it or was he happy 15 yeah Yeah. wow as josh said this guy clearly has an oedipus complex so word spread about his bizarrely inappropriate interactions with his mother which led to teasing from the other inmates You may recall a similar relationship with Gary Ridgway and his mother. And Emily, I think, was Jerry Brudos the other guy? I feel like we had, Uh, I mean, I know we've had several. Gary Ridgway with his mother hated her. Right, but just like the boundaries of like, I remember bathing him him and then. um, I don't know about Jerry Brudos. That's not ringing any bells. Anyway, I know we've covered several that tend to have those weird boundaries with their mom. Oh, yeah, many of them. An uncomfortably close and inappropriate relationship between Dwayne and his parents wasn't anything new. He had always told his parents everything about his life. They would all make sexual jokes together. Even with the physical relationship he had with his mother, though, Dwayne would go on to tell psychologists that he felt closer to his father. January 1966 saw the start of Dwayne's trial. It lasted 13 days. The defense brought 10 witnesses, The state had no less than 27, and all those pesky samples. The now 17-year-old was being tried as an adult, and on February 10th, Dwayne Lee Little was found guilty of first-degree murder. The following day, he was sent to the Oregon State Penitentiary to begin his life sentence. He remains in the history books as the youngest person sentenced to serve time in an Oregon prison. In May of that year, Katha Neely, Dwayne's aunt, was accused of perjury regarding the testimony she gave at the trial. She had apparently told officers during the investigation that she had helped Margaret look for a knife, the presumed murder weapon, in the little home. However, when she was on the stand, she claimed to have never said such a thing. And unfortunately, I was unable to find the outcome of the incident, but it did look like uh, they, she was fighting back against that perjury charge. Appeals were still being filed in September of 1967, and they were still in regard to the improper search and seizure of the samples. They also complained that the pretrial media coverage meant Duane could not have received a fair trial. The court said, well, everything we saw in the media was factual, 
So that's not really an issue. (laughs) That's kind of funny. Right? And the samples were not taken unconstitutionally. Worst of all, the defense argued that there was no proof of rape. In fact, they had the balls to argue that the evidence showed Richard had only attempted intercourse with her after she was dead. So technically, she wasn't raped. She can't consent. The judge thankfully dismissed that, hopefully with a middle finger. There had obviously been a sexual drive behind the attack and murder, so it didn't matter if she had been alive at the time or not. And there you have it, folks. Justice. A killer caught, tried, and sentenced to life. No, I I think maybe not. Oh, I have so many more pages. Orla had been killed in 1964. Dwayne was convicted in 1966. Eight years later, in 1974, the parole board, which claimed to be operating under the laws and guidelines they were forced to, found it appropriate to grant 27-year-old Dwayne parole. He hadn't even been sentenced. You know, it wasn't a 25 to life like parole might come up at some point. It hadn't been listed as an option. Yet here he was walking out of Oregon State Penitentiary on May 24th. What he did have was a spotless record not only behind the prison walls, but on his day trips and work releases. It's unclear if he ever expressed any remorse for the murder. I feel like his would be an interesting case to study when looking at nature versus nurture, Mm. because here you have a kid with parents who were really passing their trauma on to him. He grew up in a turbulent, unhealthy, and violent home. And then as a teenager, he was sent, not just like sent away, but to adult prison, a place where even the hard criminals, they were actually voicing their concerns about him being in the general population for his own safety. Yeah. So he didn't have any parenting through his teens and 20s. He was raised by prisoners. And so I definitely found myself wondering if he had been sent somewhere for like mental health at 16 years old, well, 17. Or specialty for his age. or Yeah, some sort of juvenile something maybe his crimes would have ended with her or because of his family and that history you have a dad who's a murderer was it destined to be what he became Mm -hmm. but I just think it's so interesting just how young he was and how that would change how your brain developed you know With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. 
Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years, but if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Since Dwayne's parole forbade him from living in Lane or Benton County, where he had lived during the murder, he joined his family at their new home in Medford within Jackson County. He had the skills to get a job working in a steel company's warehouse. He never missed a check-in with his PO, and he loved being a free man. He still had his whole life ahead of him. He enjoyed simple things like hanging out with friends, going swimming, and leisure time at the Applegate River. The friends he did have had his PO a little bit worried, though, so much so that in his file, the following note was left, quote, It appears to be that he is not very discerning of people around him and is too anxious to accommodate others' needs and wants above his own. Oh, what a sweet boy. Just like how he put Orla's needs before his. Oh, right. Medford is just 30 miles north of Carberry Creek Road, and you might have noticed he was released in early 1974, which was just a few months before the Cowden family went missing. And that note from the P.O. about those concerns? It was written on September 3rd, two days after the family was last seen. I spoke last week about the lack of evidence in the Cowden case and how concerned officials were when they saw Duane had been released. Their concerns were nearly validated when it was discovered that Margaret, Bruce, and Duane had visited a remote cabin just outside Copper over Labor Day weekend. All three had been spotted in and around town over that same weekend. It was also learned the family had moved even closer than Medford, and they were now living in Rutch, just 18 miles from the campsite. The little family was interviewed and questioned about that weekend, but no one had known anything about the Cowdens. Police even took their truck in to be examined. Nothing was found of importance, but it was noticeable how immaculately clean that cab was. Not only was there no sign of the Cowden family, there was no sign of the little family. It was so clean it looked new. They also knew Margaret had purchased a 22 caliber rifle that July, but it was never found. Things stayed quiet until Christmas time when Dwayne's girlfriend learned of his infidelity. That was when she decided to spill the secret she had been keeping to protect him. Now that she was pissed, those concerns were gone. She then reported to police that she knew that Dwayne was in possession of a 22 caliber gun. This wasn't just in regard to the Cowdens, since they had been killed with a 22, but Dwayne was a felon on parole, and another stipulation was that he was not to be in possession of weapons, especially guns. In fact, a cousin of Dwayne's said during the first trial that Dwayne Lee would rather have a quick-draw pistol than anything in the world. Thankfully, this tattle had a good outcome. Dwayne had been offered an option. You can take a polygraph test about the Cowden family. If you pass, we will drop the gun charges. He chose instead to take the chance with prison, which um, I think that's telling. speaks volumes. Dwayne's parole was revoked in January 1975, and he was officially booked in May. He was back in OSP after enjoying 364 days of freedom. That's not technically any proof, but I know I would certainly risk taking a lie detector test instead of facing an angry judge and possibly going back to prison. Unfortunately, that's not really enough to go to court with. But was he comfortable with prison, too? Like, maybe... Oh, I'm sure. I would have to think... You there know, is like some plenty comforting of people element. recommit mm-hmm. crimes just to go back to prison. Especially 
eight years from being 17. Like those are pivotal years. That was like college for him. Yeah, exactly. Police knew what kind of man Dwayne was. So they, quote, begged and groveled with the parole board on this one, trying to keep Dwayne in. We gave them everything. We sent up reports and even sent up people to talk with them to keep him off the streets. And they elected to turn him loose. Well, it was a psychiatric report by Dr. George Bischel that said, I feel really good about this young man. I would be awfully surprised if he returns to this institution again, and I recommend his parole. Of course. It's always the parole board. And that the was the psychiatrist. doctors that they work with. No offense, psychiatrists, but I feel like you guys get duped a lot. It's like... They're like, this man is incredibly charming. Well, he would never do human. any harm. They're all human. It's the charm that's dangerous. Soon AI will be the psychiatrist and then we won't have to yeah, worry. That'll, that's a good tool for it. They'll be like, bullshit. Do not really. <laughs> you are a liar. He is a sociopath. He will recommit. <laughs> Keep him here. I am minority report. <laughs> the law, according to us. In 2053, (laughs) it's going to be wild. Look out when we're co-presidents of the world. (laughs) Unlike the beer that sent Russell Obrimsky back to prison to complete his life sentence, being in possession of a gun only sent Dwayne away for just about two years. Once again, his charming personality and glowing record were his get-out-of-jail card. He requested to be paroled to California. He wanted out of Oregon for a fresh start but California was not interested in having him as a citizen, so it was denied. Stuck in the state, he wound up with his new wife in Hillsboro, close to her family. There, he started working at a potato chip company. And as far as anyone who knew him was concerned, prison had done nothing but help him become a better man. Others felt it had only helped him become better at hiding who he truly was. For three whole years, Dwayne stayed out of trouble and out of the papers, That piece came to an end on June 2nd, 1980. That morning, 23-year-old Ann Hendricks, who had been recently laid off, was planning on spending the day visiting with a friend, applying for jobs, and picking up her final paycheck. It was about 3 p.m. as she drove her older Carmen Ghia on the 99 West through Tigard, a suburb just outside Portland. It was there her car broke down. To get to a phone, she threw out her thumb and waited to catch a lift. According to Anne Rice, a man appeared who was also trying to get a ride, and he sheltered Anne from the coming rain. Then a man in a blue Honda pulled over, and amazingly, Anne recognized him. They weren't exactly friends and hadn't even engaged in conversation previously, but he had been employed at the same place that she was headed to go get her check. Happy to be out of the weather and with someone she at least sort of knew, Anne got into the backseat of the Honda as the other man got in front. Anne requested to be taken to a phone, and the driver agreed. Stopping at a nearby school, she hopped out and thanked him for the ride. As she tried to get an answer from anyone she called, she was having no luck. It appeared no one was home. She figured she could walk back to her car and try to get it going again. If it still wasn't working, it wasn't inconceivable to just walk all the way home. As she started her return trip to the car, the blue Honda reappeared. The driver had taken the other hitchhiker to where he needed to go, so he thought he'd come by and offer her a ride, which she took him up on. She felt comfortable enough, and she wasn't all that far from home, so what was the harm? Getting close to her home, Anne pointed to her driveway. When the man seemed to have mistakenly passed it, he claimed he would turn around and go back. Instead, he just kept going. Quote, I kept telling him to turn off on the street so he could go back but I thought he was just going around the whole street to take me back. Then he asked me if I was smart, and I said I tried to be. Then he pulled out the switchblade, and he said, then you'll do what I want you to do. When she begged for not only her life, but the life of her unborn baby, he told her to consider that when he was giving directions. The driver then left her neighborhood entirely and got on the I-5 South. As he drove, he demanded oral sex. She complied. He was at least polite enough to ask if she could, quote, stomach it, meaning his ejaculate. She was honest and said no, which he was shockingly okay with. That is really too detailed for me. Gross. (laughs) Well, it's I mean, it's graphic and horrible. It's interesting, I think, of just 
one that he would ask and two yeah. that he would be okay with either way, whatever You're her answer literally was. literally forcing this woman to yeah. do this. I, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah, that's like, bizarre. Oh, okay. That is bizarre. About eight miles down the five, they got onto northbound 205. When she inquired as to what their destination would be, he was terrifyingly frank. He was looking for a good spot off the road, something hidden away. He finally exited the freeway and they got out. The knife was still on him, which was why she continued to comply with the next requests. Exit the car from the driver's side, hold his hand, and walk up a hill with him to a tree-lined area. They were barely away from the highway when he started to give out more instructions for the sexual assault he was about to commit. She was to strip, which she did. She was to French kiss him and respond to his dirty talk. Because he hadn't brought lubrication, he was unable to vaginally rape her. He again forced her to give him oral sex. Unable to finish that route, he then masturbated. He got dressed, then asked Anne to do the same. As she went to get up, he politely extended an arm. She took him up on the help and pulled on his hand. As soon as she was standing, he whipped her around and put his arms around her neck. Maneuvering again, he turned her and was strangling her with both hands. Hours later, Anne woke up. She was alive but discombobulated. She couldn't see and her body hurt. Her eyes tried to focus and then she realized her shirt was over her head, blocking her eyes. She tried to move it with her right hand, but it wasn't working. Grabbing it with her left, she eventually found success, saying, It took five minutes for me to get my sweater down from over my head. And then she tried sitting up, but she was too weak. When she could finally see, she realized she had been dragged into a thicket of blackberries. The reason her hand wouldn't work? Her wrist was cut to the point you could see bone. Then there was pain in her leg. That was when she saw her left ankle had been slashed as well. Painstakingly, she crawled out of the berry bush. Getting to a grassy opening, she changed her focus from getting out of the area to getting help. Because she had stopped so close to the freeway, there were plenty of cars. It took everything in her to make herself large enough to be seen as she tried to wave at least her good arm for help. The first cars passed, then more, and more. She said it would be about 30 cars later that someone finally stopped. It was clear from the amount of blood on Anne that she was in desperate need of help. The police were called immediately. Minutes later, state trooper Greg Shankle arrived on the scene. Although the first reports were that Anne leapt from the car when the knife attack happened, the more gruesome details would eventually be found out. Taken to the Meridian Park Hospital just a few miles away, the serious degree of injuries Anne had sustained was discovered. The ankle and wrist slashings, which were now full of dirt and other freeway off-ramp debris, caused the severing of nerves and tendons, including the Achilles. Not only had she survived the rapes, the half-gallon of blood loss, and strangulation, but another stab wound was found, barely missing the lights-out switch at the base of her skull. Eight hours later, surgery was complete, and she was doing okay, as was her 12-week pregnancy. That's amazing. Right. The blood loss alone. So, I mean, each part. This leads me to think that he thought he killed her. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. I think with the, the bushes especially. Yeah. That my first thought when I read that was, oh, he thought he was just disposing her body. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. When she came to, all she cared about was getting the information about her attacker to the police. She had already been telling every detail to anyone who would listen when she was going to the hospital. Now she was getting more specific, not just about his height and weight and build and his car, but the key fact that she recognized him. That point really made my skin crawl because that means he knew as soon as he picked her up that he was going to kill her. Yeah. Because there was no way that he was going to do what he had planned and leave a witness that knew him. Like basically by name. Yeah, that was a big mess up on his. Especially since he dropped her off and went back. You know, he could have just dropped her for the phone and been like, whoa, I can't attack someone I know. Yeah, he thought about it. Yeah, it was like, oh, well, I'll have to kill her because I know her and I'll go back and get her. And what was funny, too, was as I was writing that part, because, you know, I'm reading through this and and referencing the book and everything. And I'm like, it, it clicks right in that moment. I'm like, oh my God, that means when he realized it was her, he knew he was going to kill her this whole time. And then the next paragraph in the book was, this means that he knew (laughs) the entire time. Like, oh no, great minds, you know. Police got to work right away. They contacted their shared place of employment and asked for names. 
They called the parole officer, who was going to provide a photo for Anne to ID. While all of that was happening, Dwayne and his blue Honda were getting pulled over. The bulletin for Dwayne being wanted hadn't been released, but police now had Dwayne in the area in the same car at the same time. Later that evening, Dwayne's car was seen again and he was pulled over. He was then arrested and charged with attempted murder and held on a million-dollar bail. This arrest allowed for his home to be searched. Some items taken as evidence were a journal, some of his clothes, and multiple knives. They never found a gun, but they did find a mind-boggling 10,000 bullets for a 22. Whoa. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of ammo. Why would you need that much ammo? That's a great question. I don't even think target practice people need 10,000. That's a lot. When his former employers got back to the police, they confirmed that Dwayne Lee Little had worked there a few months prior, but took leave after a work-related injury. He hadn't been working at all since that time. Prior to that job, he had worked at a candy shop. He tried working in Idaho, and then he landed the job that would end up crossing paths with Anne. Given Dwayne's violent past, he wasn't held in jail to await trial. He was sent back to his home away from home, Oregon State Penitentiary. He was being transferred to the prison in a van along with three other inmates. Weirdly, the officers escorting them were named Virginia Wolf, not the author, and Clarence Hendrick, not to be confused with Anne Hendricks. Twenty minutes into the ride, a bathroom stop was requested, then demanded. Officer Hendrick locked Officer Wolf and the two other inmates in the van while he walked the two men, one being Dwayne, to the bathrooms at the rest stop. As Officer Hendrick waited for the men to finish, Dwayne started to complain of stomach issues, which would require his waist shackle to be removed. The officer understood but wasn't taking any chances, so he released both hands from the belly chain but cuffed Dwayne's left wrist to the ADA bar. Dwayne had leg irons while in the van, but now he had a free hand and another held by a flimsy bar, a bar he was able to break away from as Officer Hendrick attempted to reshackle him. The two started to fight, Dwayne for his freedom, Hendrick for his life. Thankfully, the other inmate that had been in the bathroom decided to do the right thing and helped in restraining Dwayne, even grabbing the officer's cuffs and placing them on him, which of course was met with a threat of, you're dead. The hero inmate was eventually moved to a solo cell where he would be safe. Before Dwayne could go to trial for what he had done to Anne, a fellow inmate, Floyd Forsberg, alerted officials to a secret stash of tools that were going to be used for an escape. Over the November 2nd weekend, Floyd took officers to a spot in a wall that hid about 20 pieces of equipment, such as crowbars, knives, and wrenches. The tour continued to the bathroom, where a piece of kicked-out plaster showed the start of the route out. This was during Floyd's own literal trials and tribulations, so he might have been trying to get a better deal. The cherry on top? He also told officials that Dwayne confessed to being the killer of the Cowden family. Before the Cowden mystery could be solved, Dwayne was charged with first-degree kidnapping, first-degree sodomy, first-degree rape, and attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty before taking a deal that dropped the sodomy charge. He was sentenced on November 11th, 1980, to 20 years for each charge. And they would run consecutively. Can you believe it? I feel like we never get that. <laughs> it's amazing. They also each had a 10-year minimum. This judge was not going to risk Dwayne getting out again. Even if he got out with the minimum, he would be over 60 years old. So this assured he would never have a relationship with the child his wife had given birth to just five weeks before the attack on pregnant Anne. Now that Dwayne had proven once again how dangerous and sociopathic he was, detectives once again wanted to find the evidence to connect him to the Cowden family. Dwayne had shown how callous he was. He had shown a history of behavior that could easily fit the M.O. of whoever killed the family. He had stabbed, strangled, and kidnapped people. He had an affinity for the same caliber gun that was used. He had been in the area. He had no issue hiding a body in the wilderness. Anne wasn't concerned with the continuing investigation. Six months later, she welcomed her healthy baby into the world, amazingly surviving her brutal attack and blood loss. She also had legal filings of her own to do. She was suing the parole board via the state of Oregon for a million dollars, 
for the harm that was caused by their negligence. Good. Asking the parole board, they claimed it was the laws that forced them to let him out. When you ask the lawyers, they say that the applicable standards were those established by the then existing statutes, which permitted parole decisions to be made in a largely unstructured manner. The buck was being passed yet again. But there is actually good news. In April 1983, the court ruled in her favor. So I didn't see the actual disclosed amount, but I do hope that she got the million and some legal fees. But, you know, once again, I would rather use my tax money on something proactive instead of paying a victim. What I've shared about Dwayne's connection to the Cowdens is about all there is to share. There is a mountain of circumstantial evidence, but nothing that any DA would approve of an indictment for. Because DNA wasn't a concern in 1974, nothing was saved that could have been tested in the 90s or today. According to Dwayne's inmate report, the sentence for the rape ended on July 21, 2007, after serving 27 of the 30 years. The sentence for attempted murder ended in 1994, after he served 14 years, and the kidnapping charge is ongoing. Dwayne is now 74 years old and has spent 53 of those years at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Hopefully, after that million-dollar settlement, and you know, all of the death and destruction, the parole board won't even consider letting him out ever again. I don't know, because he's so old, they oh, might. Oh, right? He wouldn't hurt anybody. Get some negative points on that stupid <sighs> mm-hmm. sheet. He's so old, it cancels all of his crimes out. Let him have a good end of his life. There was another arrest of a little man in 1988. This time it was Bruce, his father. In late May, Bruce was working as a ship engineer and would be arriving via boat in Los Angeles. As he disembarked, he was arrested by California police. Trying to figure out what was going on, Bruce was informed he was being arrested for contempt in regard to his escape from the Eastern State Hospital. This arrest was actually thanks to an incoming officer who asked an old-timer who was heading out about those lingering cases. That was when he was told about how no one tried to get Bruce to face his consequences. The hospital still had him listed as an escapee. That new officer wanted to tie up that loose end. Bruce couldn't understand. He hadn't been in hiding. He had spoken with at least three lawyers to make sure he was in the clear, so he just went on living his life. Both he and Margaret felt he was being targeted in hopes that he would roll over on their son. Dwayne had shared everything with them. Maybe he had committed other crimes, like, say, killing an entire family while on Labor Day vacation. As Margaret said in response to that theory, why in the world would they bother a good man otherwise? Bruce was held in jail in Los Angeles when he wasn't able to pay the $100,000 bail. I dug and dug, and I even emailed the hospital but I cannot find any outcome for Bruce's case. So I don't know if he wound up going back to the hospital and had to spend the rest of his life there, or if he was just once again allowed to walk free. Okay, a few end notes here. Though the Cowden family massacre is technically unsolved, Dwayne remains the prime suspect. It is simply a lack of solid evidence, which of course can be viewed as a lack of guilt, pinning him to the murders. If only the police had been aware of his presence right away, they could have followed him or tried to gather evidence as he disposed of it. For most of Anne's report of the incident, I again used Anne Rule's book, But I Trusted You. There is a lot of great info, but there is also some yuck, like referring to Orla as a well-developed, very pretty blonde. So it's obviously an Anne Rule book, so check it out. Uh, There are many discrepancies in the story, as there always are. Most in this case had to do with names, so both Little and Harden were used as Dwayne's last name in papers. Both Dwayne, D-W-A-I-N, and D-W-A-I-N-E are used in legal documents, and Orla's last name was spelled as Phipps, P-H-I-P-P-S, and Phipps, F-I-P-P-S. So there you have it, the long and twisted tale of the Little family and the irreparable damage they have done. There is a lot to unpack, though. You know, should a 16-year-old be in prison with adults? Should a child be charged as an adult, though they were 15 when the crime was committed? Would he have benefited from rehabilitation and had a healthy, nonviolent life? Well, yeah, no, he shouldn't have been in prison. (laughs) I mean, it's just so inappropriate to me to put 
a teenager in with. And the crime is so uncommon for a kid that age, you know, which is definitely a red flag. And I don't think they should just be getting mental health treatment, right. you know, like obviously. But I think that it was really wrong to put someone so young with like hardened criminals. And if the criminals are even saying, hey, mm-hmm. he shouldn't be here. That's a concern. Yeah. Listen to the people that are in the situation. And I, but I don't know if he could be rehabilitated, if I'm honest. Like, what a weird childhood. Oh, yeah. I mean, your whole childhood building up to that, it's not shocking that he wound up killing a classmate and in a really horrific, shocking way and having it be sexually driven. You've got this weird who, that's what he was doing with his mom in public. That was in the visiting area. So who knows the lack of boundaries in the home? Oh, yeah. You know, again, was it Carrie Ridgway? Was she bathing him? Was he sleeping in the bed with them? Like, who knows? So, yeah, his foundation was shite from the beginning. And then, yeah, you have this horrible murder of this young girl. It really feels like they it's a small town and they're like, we just need justice. Like, just send this kid off. There's no other answer. But boy, another... Another winning decision by parole board. Yeah. And so then it's like, well, should a 16-year-old go away for life? Well, no, probably not. No, but also can they come out 10 years later and have a normal life? Some do. So Yeah. Some some, do. Yeah, where it's like, I'm never going back to that again. Many, many killers who have, you know, somebody has taken a life, go to prison, do their time, and then don't do it again. It happens. Yeah. And we don't talk about that enough, I think. It's like, how did the circumstances with the parole board? Hi, I'm Jenny, and I got really upset at my husband. I caught him cheating, and I reacted, and I shot him. Well, you know. And then it's like, okay, well, let's look at your history. Oh, yeah, that does seem to be like a one-off thing. We've seen case after case where the parole board doesn't have the whole picture. Yeah. They have the documents in front of them, and if it fits the guidelines, they pursue it, right? Yeah. That it doesn't give you all the context. And it's their job to protect the public. Like, they should be looking at the public's interest. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and that's what I mean. You look at this murder of Orla, like, her throat was cut, she was stabbed, uh, attempted rape, like, all these things for a child to be doing, a 15 year old child to be doing. Like, that is so above and beyond and so much more alarming. It's just, it's baffling that that's not seen that way. Or that that's not presented. It's wild. So yeah, so just one more case of somebody let out early, not being monitored to the degree they should be, and potentially not just Anne and what happened to her, but potentially the Cowden family, which I really do lean towards it. It's like you have his name in a guest book that weekend, a couple miles from the campsite. You have him showing a history of violence against women. And the ability to hide bodies very flippantly. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's obviously coincidental, but it seems like definitely likely. Yeah, Um, 22 caliber. Yeah. But, you know, I wondered a a little like, was was his mom aware if he did? Like, was there help? Because that's a lot of people to wrangle. And that was the mom's point that that's why they were going finally going after his dad. Like, why would you wait until the son was in the news and now it's like well maybe if we threaten you to go back to the hospital you'll tell us that your son admitted to this murder or whatever which obviously never came to fruition but I hope he or whoever committed that murder against the family before it's too late I hope they confess to it that'd be nice closure No, I just have heartburn. What's that from? Spaghetti and milk? Yep. yep. You don't get it with the milk. Sorry, didn't have the milk. I don't get it from spaghetti. I had a peach earlier and it gave me heartburn. Wow. Today I'll be telling you about the crimes Dwayne committed that leaded. (laughs) (laughs) You're in such a groove too. That leaded. Leaded. Until I write him in prison and talk him into doing a biography of his crazy life. You shut up. Which portion of the penis? It didn't. <laughs> Excuse Please me. do that again. Put that on the anti-gun <laughs> billboards. Think about it, guys. <laughs>
think about your penis. I like oh. when she, when she <laughs> messes up. She goes, oh, 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 wait, <laughs> that's what? your thing. You go, oh, because <laughs> the other part of my brain goes, hey, and I go, huh? <laughs> what? Who? Who's talking? Where? What, what's going on? What word? Who? <laughs> If Bruce wasn't certain at first that his brother Lee had purposely aimed f- oh. at his wiener. <clears throat> Sorry, I finished it for you. <laughs> you did. In. Thank you. We're always finishing each other's wieners. <laughs> gobble, gobble. Ew. I just pictured a giant turkey wiener. Ew. I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> I was going to say, what do turkey wieners look like? No, it was like a cartoon turkey, but a wiener. Ew. That's what I pictured. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful imagination. Just, I think you need to just, just slow down just a touch. Okay. Um, get some snail mucin. That will slow you down. <laughs> I'll just swallow some. Besides, it's amazing benefits of your skin. It helps slow you down. Oh, good. Because snails <laughs> pays. I can't wait to see those ads. A snail being wrung out. Just slow down. <laughs> You've had a long day. Treat yourself right. Snail mucin. The essence of moisture. Well, I didn't. Hot (laughs) damn. Hot damn, okay. Okay. I'm just trying to help you out. I see your damn and I raise it a hot. Be able to make a positive as as D. Positive as fuck ID is is where they were going. (laughs) I'm positive as fuck. That's the guy. I'm sorry, body samples? As in saliva, hair, oh, all of that. Okay. Musin. <laughs> he wanted out of Oregon for a fresh, fresh start. Same. Footsteps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Delicate footsteps for a fresh start in California. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls.